are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound gets sponsorship from Sassafras. It's fun to smell, fun to taste, and even more fun to say. Sassafras! Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to Rootbound. I am your host, and my name is Steve. Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, and on each episode, I invite a guest who shares with me about a plant that means something to them, then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me, and through this process, we all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. And this episode is the first episode where we're going to talk about carnivorous plants. I'm surprised it took 50 episodes to talk about carnivorous plants because they're so cool and I think they're all kind of like embedded in our psyche from like a young age because it's such like a compelling topic, you know, plants that eat other things. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's very fascinating. I, at least when I was a kid, I was very fascinated by them. And so I'm very excited for you all to hear this conversation that I have with our guest today about carnivorous plants. But just a couple little carnivorous tidbits before we get started. Uh, the one thing which I learned in this episode is that I didn't know that, that Charles Darwin, famous for writing The uh, Origin of Species, was also really into carnivorous plants. And he wrote a book called Insectivorous Plants. And it was a whole treatise on the subject of carnivory and plants, which I thought was very fascinating. Um, and while looking into this, I also uh, learned that um, carnivory and plants has evolved independently at least 12 times. And so uh, carnivory and plants is an example of convergent evolution. And that's this concept of, of traits in animals that have evolved to have the same trait independently over time. So like unrelated species evolve the same trait. A really good example uh, I read on the Wikipedia page for convergent evolution is flight. You know, there's insects that have evolved flight. There's birds that have evolved flight. There was dinosaurs that evolved flight. They, they're not related, you know, evolutionarily, at least not very close. Um, but that, that uh, ability to fly evolved independently. Another really interesting example of convergent evolution, I forget the exact number, this is off the top of my head, but I read somewhere that, that the, uh, the crab has evolved independently many times. Like that shape and that kind of function of an animal has evolved independently. Uh, I think I read an article, I'll, I'll link in the show notes if this is cr- true. The article was like, why does evolution keep making crabs? Because <laughs> apparently that, that shape has evolved uh, independently several times. So anyway, I thought that was fascinating about carnivorous plants, that the, that the different carnivorous plants don't all have one origin. They're independent. And we'll learn a little bit more about that and uh, hear a little bit more about Charles Darwin, but also just more about two really cool carnivorous plants. Here we go. Look, you're a plant, an inanimate object. Does this look inanimate to you, punk? Hello, T. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have a plant to share with us today? I certainly do. It's one of my favorite carnivorous plants. Um, Today, I'm going to be talking about the thread-leafed sundew, which is also known as Drosera filiformis. Very interesting. Just just to 
to to jump in real quick, you have the um, honor of having the first carnivorous plant on Rootbound. So congratulations! Woohoo! I'm surprised a little bit because carnivorous plants are like they're like really cool plants. So I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. They are. They are really cool plants, and I think like. In my experience, the people who are involved in them and who grow them or who live near places where they grow naturally are like really deep into it. You know, they're, they're <laughs> like full on carnivorous plant people. So, yeah, it's I mean, I suppose it's probably just a case of maybe you haven't stumbled across one of us yet. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I guess I guess. Not, yeah. Um, spoiler alert. I've also picked a carnivorous plant. I, I don't think I count as a carnivorous plant person. And mine is kind of basic, but we'll, we'll get into it later. Um, but cool. yeah, can you say the name of yours one more time? It was the sundew. What was it? The It's the thread-leafed sundew. Thread-leafed sundew. Yeah. Yeah, the thread-leafed sundew. So-called because, I don't know, I mean, if your listeners aren't particular famili- particularly familiar with sundews, their whole thing is that they have these little um, hairs on their leaves with like a little globule of um, like a digestive kind of mucus uh, on the end, which kind of glistens in sunlight. So that's why they get the name sundew. The leaves, mm. they've got these little droplets of dew all over them, and they, ten- they tend to be found in quite sort of sunny areas. So they've got this kind of like glistening kind of dewy look. And this particular one, its leaves are very, very elongated and uh, little droplets of dew are all the way along the length of the leaf so that's why it's called the thread leaf sundew very interesting all right let's get into some basics of this let's i mean first where is it from and then let's get into how it's carnivorous it's from north america so in north america there are actually quite a lot of um different types of sundews depending on which part of north america we're talking about we've got temperate sundews which tend to have like a winter dormancy and then we've got uh, like more sort of tropical did I say sundews? Temperate carnivores and tropical mm. carnivores. So the temperate carnivores okay. tend to have a period of dormancy and the, the more tropical ones tend to be um, active year-round. So the Drosera filiformis is um, found around about sort of North Carolina sort of area of North America. So it's what would be considered a temperate carnivorous plant. So it does go dormant in the winter. So um, if you're from that sort of part of North America, you would find them sort of out in kind of boggy uh, wetland areas, um, sort of spring, summer through to like early August, uh, early autumn, when they would start to die down for the winter. Very interesting. This is something that uh, I'm going to also mention later. You know, I think I didn't realize how being an American, how about how many carnivorous plants are native to America? And also I'm on the East Coast and a lot of them are from this kind of general neck of the woods, which is kind of interesting. You think of, I think we get this impression of carnivorous plants and we just think like jungles, like very mm. like exotic places. Um, yeah, totally. But they're they're kind of right around here. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, even in England, um, we have a few sundew species dotted around. Oh. I've never actually found any in the wild myself, um, but there are some that are from here. And something that I'll touch on a little bit later, Charles Darwin, who obviously was from England, was really into his carnivorous plants, particularly sundews, and he wrote about them quite a lot. So, um, yeah, they, they come up in his work quite a bit. But it's it's true. I lived in California for a while. I was down in Southern uh-huh. California where there aren't really any. But uh, one of the things I really wanted to do but didn't get a chance to while I lived there was go north because in North California and like Oregon area, that's where you find all of the really cool like pitcher plants, the really tall oh. like Saracenia pitcher plants, the cobra lilies like Darlingtonia, um, the really cool like if you if you're, if your listeners look it up, a, a cobra lily is a really cool looking plant and they just grow in the wild up there. So hopefully one day I'll get to go back and see them. Very yeah, it's very cool. Okay, I, I, one more one more thing. I think I kind of jumped past because I got so into carnivorous plants. So before we talk about <laughs> how it works, 
why is it meaningful to you? Why did you choose uh, the the thread-leafed sundew? Um, probably because early on in my growing of carnivorous plants, I started out like so many people do with like the the textbook carnivorous plant, like beginner's collection. So like a Venus flytrap, um, a North American pitcher plant, and uh, probably one of the sundews that's most commonly found is Drosera capensis, which is a Cape sundew, which is native to Africa, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started to feel a bit more confident with my growing abilities, because there are certain things you have to take into consideration when you're growing these plants. They're not just the kind of things that you can put on a windowsill like you know, any of our normal house plants, water with tap water and, and expect them to survive. That's They don't work like that. They have some mm. specific sort of care requirements. So once I'd gotten to grips with that and I decided I wanted to start branching out into something a little more unusual, one of the first other types of sundew that I bought was Drosera filiformis. I got it from one of the carnivorous plant growers in the UK that's that's quite well known. Um, and when it arrived, it didn't really look like much because, you know, the plant that I got had only really just woken up from dormancy. It maybe only had four or five real skinny looking, you know, quite sort of sad looking leaves on it because i mean mm-hmm. sundews being that they're covered in all of this sticky dewy kind of um mucus if you wrap them up to, to ship them that doesn't travel terribly well they need some time to sort of regenerate that and to recover so when it arrived it was just this kind of like sad looking little thing that just looked like weird grass you know and I was like, uh-huh. oh. but once i got it settled and it started to put out new leaves i realized that this thing was really really cool like really really beautiful compared to you know the other things I, it was just unusual looking compared to the others it's like a lot of sundews have like a, almost like a stem and then the end of the leaf is like a like a sort of like I don't know almost spoon shaped or it's got like a paddle at the end and that's where all of the little like hairs are where the where the juices are you know but this thing's got them all the way along so almost like tentacles you know emerging from the ground these like tentacles ready to catch flies and then it flowered sends out this huge great big long stem with these beautiful pink flowers on the top and like it was just the most unbelievable display and in the height of summer I had it out on um, my balcony uh, just out in the open to get some sun like out one day I used to keep them in a little greenhouse thing that didn't get full sun all day so when it was really sunny I used to take them out put it out on this balcony like handrail and I just caught it one day with the sun shining on it just glistening with these beautiful pink flowers and it had got to a really quite impressive size as well so the sundews I'd had before were maybe four inches tall at most this thing was like creeping up to a foot tall the flower stems even longer than that we're looking at like 14 16 inches you know it's massive great big thing and I just thought this this is so cool this is definitely a favorite it's just amazing and then as we'll go into as we go on through the podcast, I'm sure there are just more and more reasons stacking up over time as to why I just love this plant. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, let's get into the to the to meat of it, so to speak. How is it uh, carnivorous? Okay, so I've talked about these little dewy bits on the end of the hairs on these leaves. Um, those are not only are they the mechanism by which they catch the prey, so if something comes into contact with that, it's like glue, they get stuck to it. Um, It's also the means by which they begin to digest their prey. So it's got digestive juices in it, and it's like sticky, kind of mucolaginous, like it's a mucusy sort of like, if you touch it, it you pull your hand away from it, it comes away in strings, you know, it's like, Mm, it's mm, sticky, mm -hmm. you know. But it doesn't, it's not like gluey sticky. Once it's on your fingers, it does, your fingers don't stick together when, when you touch them together. You know, it doesn't feel like you've just put glue on your fingers. It's just uh-huh. kind of I'm trying to think what I can liken it to really, but it's, it's just an interesting substance, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, 
these um, these little hairs on the leaves, they have glands at the ends of them that produce this stuff. And any sort of flying insects or crawling insects that come into contact with the leaf and come into contact with this stuff, they get stuck. The more they struggle, the more this gloop gets on them, the more stuck they become. Not only that, but triggered by the capturing of prey and the movement and the struggling, these tentacles actually start to close in on the prey as well. Ooh. And in some species, the leaves will actually curl around the prey too. That doesn't happen quite so much in Drosera filiformis because it's such a long leaf. You know, sometimes you'll mm. see it'll it'll sort of bend towards the prey a little bit just to kind of facilitate more contact, more hairs to come in contact with it. But if mm -hmm. you look at species like the other one I mentioned earlier, Drosera capensis, that's got like a little paddle at the end that's just got the hairs concentrated on there. If something comes into contact with it, after a couple of hours if you look at it it's kind of folded in on itself and has engulfed the prey once it has gotten the prey well and truly like covered in this sticky stuff and it's you know it's it's got it captured it's not going anywhere it starts to digest it using the juices that are in those little sticky globule, globules of mucus and basically it absorbs the nutrients from the prey that it lacks from what it would usually be taking up from the ground the whole reason that plants have developed carnivorous mechanisms of nutrient intake is because where they grow are nutrient poor areas that's also why mm. if you water them with tap water or you fertilize them like you would in a regular house plant you'll kill it because they are not designed to take nutrients up through their roots they're extremely sensitive to mineral content and nutrients in soil so that's why they capture their prey and why fascinating so that's really interesting like I, that. and i i think i knew this part but i just wanted to, i was like pondering this yesterday when i was thinking about it it really is just for the nutrients. They still photosynthesize like normal plants, right? They yeah. still need sun, but it's yeah. just those like other nutrients that are required to like do their processes as they're absorbing. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So if you think about where they grow um, in North America, for example, um, it's boggy environments. So the soil is very, very wet. It's wetland soil, which means that any nutrients that would be present in that soil are being leached away by constant water movement through that soil. Mm -hmm. So the nutrient content does not stick around in that soil, which means that plants that are used to bringing nutrients up through their roots don't get enough sustenance in areas like that. So the plants that do tend to grow in those areas have they've developed other means of doing it. So whether it is symbiotic relationships with microfauna in the soil that works in, in tangent with their roots to help in tandem, sorry, with their roots to bring the nutrients up that way. That's one way they can do it. Or the carnivorous plants, they don't have these relationships with soil microfauna. So they bring the nutrients in from above the soil via carnivorous means. So yeah, basically the roots are not designed for nutrient uptake at all and are extremely sensitive to being put in a nutrient rich environment. It'll kill them. Um, which is why, you know, potting media is extremely important. The water that we use is extremely important and making sure they get their nutrients above soil is important. Um, but yeah, they photosynthesize normally. They flower and rely on pollinators the same way as other flowering plants do. So in pretty much all of the usual sort of ways in terms of sustenance, uh, other than nutrient uptake, they have the same traits as other plants. Very fascinating. Man, that's super fascinating. Um, <laughs> so let's get into, I mean, I think, you know, the carnivorous plants, are just full of dazzling details. But what are some other dazzling details about this plant? What what uh, what haven't we talked about about how this plant propagation? Propagation's cool. So um, you can get seed pretty easily from these guys if you pollinate them with their own like flowers from the same stalk. Quite often, if you've got them outside, like I had in a, I just had like a little pop up greenhouse that I used to leave open so insects could come and go, get eaten by the plants, or pollinate the plants, do what they want. You know. Um, Quite often I would find that the flower stems would produce seed without any intervention from me at all because pollinators would visit them, they'd self-pollinate and the seeds would be 
numerous. They produce so many seeds. So if you've got a flower stem that's gone to seed and you leave it and there's other pots of carnivorous plants around them, the seeds will distribute and they will fall on those pots and they'll they'll grow elsewhere as well. Wow. So they're very, very easy to grow from seed. Um, in, in you know if you've got one flowering it's very easy to get seed that way but also they propagate very easily from uh, leaf cuttings as well so if you cut mm. one of the long um, leaves off it and cut it into sections lay those sections out horizontally on some sphagnum moss or similar sort of suitable potting medium you'll end up with little plantlets growing from intervals along those leaves as well so you can get loads and loads of these plants from just one which is really very cool. fascinating that's <laughs> yeah. really interesting uh one, one thing you just brought up I thought was pretty interesting uh, separately from the propagation is just how they rely on, like, you know, a lot of plants rely on insects for pollination, but they also rely on the insects, the same insects probably for yeah. for their nutrients. And, and I, I wonder if those insects are feel betrayed and they're like, wait. Well, it's <laughs> interesting actually, because if you look at the way a lot of carnivorous plants flower, they mm-hmm. flower in a way that puts the flowers far out of reach of the traps. So they've got ways of kind of making sure that the insects they're relying on to pollinate them don't end up getting eaten by them by accident. (laughs) So if you look, if you look up photos of like a Venus flytrap in flower or Uh um, Saracenia pitcher plants in flower, or even any of these sundews we're talking about, the flower stalks are extremely long and are like elevated quite high above or particularly when it comes to things like Saracenia, you'll find that the flowers come out before the pitches are fully developed. So they flower quite early on in the season and the flower is very, very tall. And uh, while they're flowering, the pitches are just starting to grow up from dormancy. So they haven't fully developed. They haven't reached the same height as the flowers yet. But with things like Venus flytraps and uh, the sundews, the flower stems just tend to be extremely long. So they put the, the pollination zone well out of way of the, the predation zone. You know? Clever, clever. Because so, even if it, it is, is some of the same insects, the chances of one that pollinated it, you know, flying down and then getting trapped yeah uh, like yeah, it's, gathering yeah very very interesting very clever. yeah it's really cool really cool <laughs> and that propagation is interesting too because not not every plant you can propagate as easily just by taking i mean you can do cuttings but it sounds like a little bit of a different process than doing like cutting propagations yeah so this is similar to the way a lot of people will propagate begonias and other similar plants that will propagate from leaves so I, I'm not going to lie, I don't know much about the, the botany, like the botanical science behind it. Um, I just know that it's possible to do with certain types of sundews, the same, well, this particular type of sundew, the same as it is with like begonias. So you don't need to take a stem cutting. There isn't really a stem with these plants. They grow from a rosette. So they've got like mm-hmm. a central rosette and these leaves emerge straight from that rosette and they've got the little carnivorous hairs with the, like the glands all the way along those leaves. But the entire length of that leaf from the rosette to the tip is propagatable in much the same way as if you take a leaf from a begonia, cut it and slice it and, you know, slice across the veins, lay it out flat on some growing media, you'll get plantlets growing from the the cut parts of the leaf. It's, it's similar with the with the Drosera filiformis. So yeah, you can just cut sections and you can grow new plants like that. You can't do it with all types of sundew. It's not something that you could do with, you know, several of the others that you find in, in sort of cultivation and also <clears throat> with other carnivores, carnivores like Venus flytraps, for example, you can't propagate them from leaves. The pitched plants, you can't propagate them from leaves. They're pretty much all from seed or division. Um, so you can't, you can't propagate a uh, Drosera filiformis by division because obviously it's a rosette forming plant. So you can't split that up and, you know, 
So it's all done either by seed or by leaf cuttings, which is, yeah, it's it's really interesting to do as well. Because like when you see the little tiny baby plants emerging from a leaf cutting, it's different to watching them grow from seed. You know, it's like yeah. you get a you get a more kind of mature plant quicker from mm-hmm. leaf cuttings than you do from seed grown. So it's really cool. That is really interesting. Um, you said this uh, kind of before, but just to be clear, with this particular plant, you didn't have to feed it. It was able to attract all of the insects it needed on its own. Um, or yeah, how does that work? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, with the temperate species, it's possible to keep them outdoors in the UK. Um, we have pretty cold winters, but not like super snowy or anything, you know, so it's pretty sort of typical kind of temperate conditions. So with the temperate carnivores, Saracenia, Dionea, the Venus flytraps, uh, Darlingtonia, Drosera, all of these um, temperate types, you can keep them outdoors. So if they're outside, they do a perfectly good job of capturing their own food. To be quite honest with you, the vast majority of the carnivorous plants that I've grown over the 15 or so years that I've been growing them on and off have been outdoors. And I've never mm. really hand fed any of them. I know some people mm. will offer them certain kinds of food if they're growing them indoors. They might give them like fish food pellets or, you know, they might feed them small insects by hand, you know, whatever. I've mm-hmm. never really bothered because they've always been outside somewhere where they can do it for themselves. Even in the greenhouse, um, conditions that I was growing them in, even when that was closed, there would be certain insects present in there. And also, unfortunately for me, spiders, I would quite often end up prey to these things too. But it just, um, just for the audience who, who may not know, uh, uh, tea is also known for uh, spider for keeping spiders, which is a little bit outside the scope of this podcast. But yes, <laughs> uh, look it up. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Um, I did have one one thing happened in the greenhouse. Well, I suppose it must have been, I don't know, a while back now, one summer. Um, I had an outbreak of shore flies. Now, I don't know how much of a problem they are in the US, but in greenhouses over here, if you've got any like standing water or damp conditions, you can have infestations of shore flies. They're just these tiny little black flies. They don't really do any harm to your plants, but they're pretty unsightly. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute boon for me because I've got a greenhouse full of food for all my plants. And <laughs> I've got a photo somewhere, but my, my filiformis, my threadleaf sundews, my God, they were covered it, like a Christmas tree covered in lights, only a sun covered in little tiny black flies they were all over it and i just thought these guys are going to do so well next year because this is going to set them up for dormancy the amount of nutrients they were taking in from all of that they were just peppered with them it was absolutely amazing so yeah like i said if i'd been growing anything else i'd have been cursing the things but because it was carnivorous plants i was like yay free food (laughs) that's very (laughs) very cool that's fascinating Um, one, I think one other thing we didn't cover, but I, I was just a thing maybe I was assuming is I guess the, the little droplets are also attractive to insects or is it more just a catching by chance thing? Um, yeah, there is a certain amount of attraction to them. I think, you know, it, it works in a lot of different ways. So there's the kind of glistening appearance of it, which to a lot of insects resembles nectar or, you know, something mm-hmm. else that is attractive for them to come and, and to, to sample. Um, off the top of my head, I'm actually not sure if there's any kind of chemical sort of um, simulation, like if it if it's got like a sweet scent to it or anything mm-hmm, to an insect. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure. Um, so that's something for me to, to go and look up myself after this. I did wonder if I was going to come away from this podcast with more questions about my own yeah. plant. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always we're, we're not afraid on this podcast to s- tell the audience to Google it if we don't know something here. Yeah, it, I mean... Yeah. 
this is this is kind of why I was looking forward to doing this podcast because you know usually when I speak to people about spiders that is my main area of study I'm an arachnologist so like I come armed with information and I uh-huh. tend to sort of be able to just sort of like hit the ground running and, and go with it and there's plenty to talk about but here like I'm not a botanist I'm a hobbyist you know and yeah. my a lot of my experience is, is anecdotal I think the things I know are things that I've observed myself or things that I've read in the same books that other people have access to you know so it's like I don't know anything particularly new or different about these plants but I have my experiences to share and i think like i have a passion for them that you know other people do share obviously carnivorous plant enthusiasts but i think a lot of other plant growers who don't specialize in carnivores perhaps don't know them the way that people like i do and that's what i want to share you know well that's an unusual story and a fascinating plant wonderful well i think that is a good uh, a good point to say uh do you mind if i share a plant with you no, please do. Wonderful. Okay, so mine mine is 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 pretty basic. I'm like I said, I'm not really a carnivore plant person, but I did choose the Venus flytrap, cool. um, which is a little bit more aspirational as far as its meaning to me. I don't actually have a lot of physical experience with the Venus flytrap. I think I've seen them as a kid, and if mm. you know, and as a kid, it's one of those things. It's like dinosaurs. I think as kids, we all kind of get obsessed with carnivorous plants and so like the totally. pitcher plant and the and and the and the uh venus flytrap are the two big ones but i do remember sundews maybe not the specific one i kind of have a memory of those yeah kind of plant. no i think the venus flytrap is just the quintessential carnivorous yes. plant isn't it <laughs> absolutely and um i didn't like you like you mentioned before i didn't realize till like probably like i don't know sometime in my 30s that they're native to like the united states and actually pretty close to here it's a it's a it's an, apparently they only grow natively in an area that's about 90 miles uh, radius around Wilmington, North Carolina. Cool. Which I didn't, I didn't know that. And, and I found that fascinating. I live in Virginia, we share a border with North Carolina. So I'm like, well, I, I should go down there sometime and check it out. Cause it's such a very Definitely. specific plant. So that's kind of my aspiration. So that's what maybe start looking into when you said you were going to pick a carnivorous plant. I was like, what should I pick? And then I remembered, listening to this podcast and learning some facts about these that I was like, Oh wow. How did I not know that? Even though this plant is kind of such a iconic plant, you know, in, in the mindset, why did I know these specific things, including where it is from? You know, I was was assumed it was from like the jungles of South America or something. Um, But no, it's, it's, it's right around. uh, Yeah. When you said that earlier, that's i mean i know obviously i'm in the uk i'm not in america i have lived in america for a little while of my in a little period of my life but america feels kind of closer to home than say you know the jungles of like southeast asia and you know yeah. these other places where i'd always assumed these things are from when you see something as alien looking uh-huh. as a venus flytrap there's just something really kind of like it lights up that childlike kind of enthusiasm and excitement mm-hmm. for these things when you realize that no way that grows probably on like people I know's doorstep you know I've got friends in America who live in that part of the country I had no idea they were so like I don't know local to people that I know and you know so accessible to someone like me who might go over to visit friends in America and then when I found out there's sundews here as well I was like mind blown yeah wow yeah that's the first time I'd heard of that of carnivorous plants in, in England as well so that's that's very fascinating so um I've got I've got you know you might know some of this stuff so bear with me for for the audience and maybe we'll see um I was trying to figure out a couple fascinating facts and dazzling details about about this plant that maybe you don't know fully, even though you're much more carnivorous plant person than I am. I have I have kind of like two or three that that I want to get into. You know, with with a sundew, like with a sundew, the same reason, right? It's carnivorous is because it lives in these nutrient poor environments. 
And so that's why I developed this method. But what I think is super fascinating, like we all can imagine a Venus flytrap, is that it, it moves, right? It it, uh, yeah. it 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 captures the plant or the the the, the bugs in this very cool me- mechanism. Um, before I get into that, just a little bit, I always love talking about the scientific names. Scientific name for Venus flytrap is Dionea m- uh, musipula. Yeah. Um, and that literally means Venus flytrap. Dionea is the Greek name for venus and then flytrap musipula could either mean mousetrap or flytrap i guess depending yeah. on who you ask um so that, that that was interesting um but the super fascinating uh is how does the flytrap know when to close um and i would you know I, and i've seen this there's a really awesome video out there of of um David Attenborough, like, you know, explaining how it works that you can yeah. watch. And he's, you know, the inside of the, the Venus flytrap has these small little hairs, which I'm sure you know of growing them. There's like not too many of them, though. There's like maybe like 10 or so of these little short hairs in yeah. the, in the, in the Venus flytrap. And if an insect touches one, nothing happens. But if it touches that same one or another one within about 20 seconds, that's when it closes. Yeah, and I watched crazy. that video and I was like, that is fascinating. But then I was like, wh- how? How how does this happen? And in, in the video from the David Attenborough, David Attenborough video is like, uh, they can count. I'm like, well, that is fascinating. But how? <laughs> like, what is really happening? How is the plant counting that it has been touched t- twice in 20 seconds? And if you touch the hair and then you touch it in like 30 seconds, nothing happens again. And, you know, that's great for the plant because, you know, if raindrops fall on it or something, it doesn't want to keep closing every time, like, anything yeah. disturbs it. Um, also really interesting, I, I didn't realize that until just today. I think I remember heard about that fact a few years ago. But once it closes, it waits to get touched five more times before it actually releases the the digestive um, juices. Yeah. And that's really great, too, because if, if it misses the, the fly, it closes, but the fly got away. It doesn't want to waste the energy to yeah. create the digestive juices if there's nothing in there. And the plant doesn't have any way to know whether there's anything in there or not, except for those little hairs. So it waits for that that struggling insect to try to get away. Um, wow! But I didn't actually know that. The I knew about the the trigger hairs, and I knew about you know sort of having to trigger it in a certain way for it to close. But I didn't know about the continued struggling being the sort of stimulus for it to release the digestive enzymes. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, if nothing if 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 nothing touches those hairs after it's closed for a little while, it will open up much sooner, and it won't won't waste energy releasing the wow. digestive juices. Now. This is where it's getting fairly sciencey, and and I'm going to try to explain this, and I still don't fully understand it, but how it actually accounts for counting? How does a how does a plant count? And it seems like a very like digital thing. Like we think in this digital world, it seems like a very like electronic thing of like, well, if this happens and then this happens, then do this. It's very like I don't know. It seems like a computer, um, but. Uh, and there's a really amazing video. If you can go online, I'll put your link in the show notes from the National Institute of Basic Biology in Ozaki, Okazaki, Japan. And they they had this, I guess it had been thinking for a while that it had something to do with calcium ions is how this works. And so they, they genetically engineered a Venus flytrap so that the calcium ions would glow, I think, under a UV lamp or something like that. Cool. So there's a video of it. And what happens is when the hair gets triggered, that causes the plant, something that mechanical movement of the hair causes a release of, of calcium ions. And so in the video, the Venus flytrap starts to glow. Whoa, that's so cool. <laughs> and then when it touches it again, the second time, it glows more and then it closes. 
Wow. And and what they have determined, and, and, and the actual mechanism of how it triggers it to close, I'm not sure, but basically when the hair gets moved, there's a wave of these of these calcium ions. And the wave goes up and it goes down over time. But that first wave is not enough to hit this threshold of calcium ions to trigger the closing. Wow. So if there is a second touch, there is a second wave of calcium ions, and those two waves are big enough to cross the threshold, and it closes. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? And it the is video is really cool. amazing. Now, now, what physically happens, why those ions, and how there's a threshold, I don't quite understand that of wh- how that is in some, somebody who's a much more biochemist probably can understand a little bit more. But I thought that was pretty cool and kind of solved my question of like, oh, how does it know? Because, um, you know, it doesn't have a brain, right? Or at least yeah. how we think of it. But it's this other, it is kind of like an analog circuit that's happening or an analog yeah. sensor. It's so, so fascinating. Um, yeah, that's mad. I love that. <laughs> and then and then this the second kind of uh, maybe surprising thing t- uh, about this that I found surprising. So when I said I, I learned this, f- some fa- the fact about where the the... Venus flytrap, where the Venus flytrap is from, from a podcast. That mm-hmm. podcast was a true crime podcast. Really? It was a podcast that's called Criminal. It's by uh, uh, Phoebe Judge is the name of the podcast. A really well-known true crime podcast. But this podcast, this episode was specifically about the crime of Venus flytrap poaching. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah that and makes sense. And when I first heard this, I was like... You might know this more as a as a as someone who who's aware of the carnivorous plant world, but apparently it is a massive problem. Or at least yeah. it, I, it it might have gotten better in recent years since this episode. I came would out, hope but, so. I would hope um, so because I mean, c- cultivating them, you know, producing seed from Venus flytraps is not difficult. So, like the amount of different things that have been going on in cultivation, like, I I don't see why there would be much call to be poaching them from the wild. But I mean, it is a big problem. It's a big problem with loads of different plants, and not yeah. just plants either, but animals too. It's something I cover a lot with the spiders. You know, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. So, so that's I mean, that's one of the the things about this episode was really fascinating. I really highly recommend listening to this episode. It's called "Dropping Like Fr- Flies" by the podcast Criminal. Uh, Phoebe okay. Judge is the host and the reporter, and this was Eric Kennel. Um, right. But in that, they also kind of talk about how, why is their poaching occurring? Because it's it's actually fairly easy to grow them, um, you know, from seed or from uh, this tissue culture is another thing, I th- yeah. way they, they grow them, which I don't fully understand. But uh, <laughs> but they, you know, and, and uh, one theory was that, well, it's just easier to take them from the wild because it doesn't take as much time. And there's essentially like, some people out there who are less scrupulous and realize they can go scoop a bunch up, take them to a local, um, you know, uh, greenhouse and sell them and, you know, make, you know, a few hundred bucks. Um, then they, they did explore this other thing, which, you know, this is maybe listen to the podcast. I won't get into too much, but there was some speculation. There is some belief that extract of Venus flytrap has very good, like magical health benefits, very potentially dubious. Yeah. Yeah. And that maybe that was driving some of the crime, but it's really not clear because the people who make that stuff say that, well, we don't need to do that because we get them from, from grown, you know, we grow them in a greenhouse, but it was a really fascinating and the way that they handle in this episode, this podcast was really well done, but I, it was a very confounding uh, episode of just. Yeah, I definitely yeah. am going to look that up. Cause I mean, besides just being aware of the fact that it's something that happens, it it is something that I've often wondered, like why does it still have to happen if you yeah. know 
if it is so easy to for you know anybody to be able to grow them like if you've got one venus flytrap that comes into flower in theory you can pollinate it using its own flowers you know so oh, it's wow. like there's no reason why you need to have a ton of them in order to get seed also buying seed is not difficult you can get venus flytrap seed all over the place i don't know if you've ever seen them but there's yeah. quite often these like novelty uh, grow your own carnivore like uh-huh. kids kits you know uh-huh. and they'll sell like there'll be a pot and there'll be like compressed peat blocks and there'll be seeds in there and i mean they don't often go terribly well because what they don't tend to explain in these kits is that with things like venus flytraps the seeds need stratification before they'll grow so that means they need a period of cold rest before uh they'll grow they need a trigger you know so like Mm -hmm. because they're temperate because they go dormant over winter Mm -hmm. seeds in the wild that are produced during the summer will fall to the ground and then you know if they germinate straight away then they've got a period of winter they're not big enough to go dormant and carry themselves through dormancy so essentially they need that winter to trigger the seed itself to germinate so Mm -hmm. in cultivation what we tend to do is we'll scarify the seed so that means break through the outer coating by sanding it lightly Mm -hmm. and then we'll stratify it by putting it in some moist sphagnum or some damp tissue paper or something in the fridge for like four to six weeks and then once it's had four to six weeks in the fridge then we'll sow it and then it'll grow so these kits don't tend to explain that and kids aren't really interested in something four to six weeks after they've been given it for their birthday you know so it doesn't tend to go terribly well but if you know about (laughs) that growing them from seed is actually really super easy like if you just cover those bases get the the scarification and the stratification done you'll have venus flytrap seedlings in no time and they're super cool to grow from seed too because they come out super tiny and the first leaf they produce has a trap you know it's like got a tiny tiny little trap it's not necessarily a functional (laughs) trap but it's Uh super tiny it's really cool so like yeah i don't knowing that you can do that with relative ease does make me wonder why people would be out there taking them from the wild and if it is just a case of it being easier because they're already grown on like that's so lazy and like no excuse to be wrecking nature you know it's terrible absolutely absolutely and i think one one thing that maybe it's you know i was trying to google and there was some relatively recent cases but it seems like maybe it wasn't as extreme as it was when this episode came out which i think was almost 10 years ago now um i Mm. think since then north carolina has made it a state felony to poach them where it wasn't a felony so in the past it was it was like not really worth it they can make more money and maybe pay a fine and, yeah you know a slap so, on the wrist you know don't do it again <laughs> indeed so uh but yeah i was like wow that is really interesting um just one last little fact of that uh the venus flytrap is covered under cites which is the uh the convention on the international trade of endangered species which it's listed Ooh. in appendix two which means to trade the actual plants I think you need a permit, but to trade seeds and like other kinds of things, you don't. So I think the the reason behind that is if you try to ship a plant to another country, you need to be able yeah. to prove that it wasn't poached. But if you're shipping yeah. seeds, it's it's not a big deal. So that's cool. Yeah, that, so that's that's, good that's what know. I have to say about Venus flytrap. They're awesome. They're so cool. Everybody should look up all of that stuff and learn more about them and try growing them themselves because they're awesome. <laughs> Does it have to be human? Does it have to be mine? Feed me! Where am I supposed to get it? Feed me, Seymour. Feed me all night long. That's right, boy. You can do it. Feed me, Seymour. Feed me all night long. (laughs) Cause if you feed me, Seymour, I can grow up 
and strong. If you weren't already aware, that sound you just heard was from the movie Little Shop of Horrors. And how can we talk about carnivorous plants without talking about Little Shop of Horrors? Um, I actually just rewatched that movie like right before recording this episode because I realized I don't think I'd actually seen it in its entirety since I was a little kid. Like I was aware of it and I'd seen bits and pieces here and there, but but I only saw it when I was really little. I remember it like being really scary to me and I don't think I actually understood that it was like a comedy <laughs> and a musical. I don't know. I remember like, you know, the 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 plant Audrey 2 being like very terrifying, which it is a very terrifying puppet of a plant. But uh, yeah, and rewatching it, I was like, oh yeah, I guess I haven't seen this whole movie. I've only seen bits and pieces. The reason why I thought I'd seen it, you know, more recently than when I was a little kid was that we talked about it when I was in film school. And I have kind of like, I'm not some kind of like conflicting theories in my brain about why we talked about it. I know we talked about it because it was an example of using the Greek chorus in a modern, you know, piece. So that concept of the Greek chorus goes back to Greek times where there was literally a chorus of of women on stage who would be uh, singing about what is happening in the play, right? They're kind of a narrator, but as a chorus and singing things in the audience, And the characters are not aware of the chorus, but the audience is. The chorus is there to kind of guide the audience through the story being told. And in the movie Little Shop of Horrors, if you haven't seen it, there's there's three young women who are kind of styled as a Motown group. And they sing about what's happening in the movie, kind of separate from all the songs that the characters are singing. They're kind of this omnipresent and uh, all-knowing group of women who, who sing about what's happening. And they they serve as the Greek chorus, and I think that was even acknowledged in the script of Little Shop of Horus that these women were going to be serving as this element of the Greek chorus. But then the other thing I remember learning when we were talking about this Greek chorus in Little Shop of Horus is that that the street urchins is what they're called. This these three women who who uh, are this Motown girl group. Um, were also a non-diegetic element. And I started trying to Google that. And I'm like, is that true? What, you know, remind me the definition of diegetic and, and non-diegetic. And it's a little bit more, like, confusing than I thought. If you're a literature expert and you want to, like, explain this to me, please come on. But, you know, the classic case that we hear about diegetic and non-diegetic in a film has to do with music. And diegetic music is music that is in the film that the characters can hear. So if your character turns on a radio and they can hear the music, that is diegetic music. And non-diegetic music is like the score, right? It's music that we all hear as the audience, but the characters do not. And so my question was like, oh, or my thought was, oh, the the street urchins in Little Shop of Horrors, they are non-diegetic characters because they're singing and they're acting in the story, but the characters are not aware of them. Um, but I guess it's a little more complicated than that, and, and maybe that's not quite an example. I couldn't find any examples online that saying, yes, the Greek chorus, the concept of the Greek chorus is a non-diegetic element. And that's because the word diegesis actually means narrative. And actually a narrator is a can be a diegetic element, or at least in, in literature is, because generally it's a character doing the narration. Anyway, I'm a little unclear about that, whether the Greek chorus is a diegetic or non-diegetic element. So if you want to have that discussion with me, maybe not in the context of plants, I'd love to talk about it because I, I was trying to figure that out before uh, I started recording and I, I really couldn't get to an answer there. But anyway, that's that's what the movie Little Shop of Horrors brought to my mind. Um, 
If you haven't watched it, definitely do. It is is a very bizarre film, very entertaining. Lots of really good songs, uh, and and just a a masterpiece of you know pre digital effect monster making. That that giant plant, Audrey Two, is just <laughs> pretty terrifying for a comedy plant, and it's the way that it moves. It is just very uh, compelling. So, uh, give it a give it a watch, and uh, that wraps up this episode of Rootbound about carnivorous plants. Hopefully, there'll be some more in the future because those two were super cool. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was T. Francis. T. is an arachnologist, scientific illustrator, and plant enthusiast. You can follow T. on Instagram at T's Jungle, that's T-E-A-S, Jungle, and there'll be a link to all of her cool stuff in the show notes. If you like Rootbound and you want to help this podcast bloom, you can find out ways to support the show at rootboundpodcast.com slash support. Rootbound is hosted by budding carnivorous plant person Steve Ellington music by Christian Kriegeskota fake ads by David Lonnie Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside but if you can go outside don't get trapped by a carnivorous plant sassafras is fun to say sassafras